So what's going to happen? What's going to happen is that AI is going to break a thing that was already broken. You'd ask me about media. It's already broken. Students writing term papers using ChatGPT. Term papers were never a good way to establish whether or not a student had absorbed information. Welcome to Beyond Unstoppable, the podcast that explores the intersection of biology, psychology, and technology. Here is your host, Ben Angel. In today's episode, we dive into the heart of the AI revolution with Jason Pfeiffer, editor of Entrepreneur Magazine and author of Build for Tomorrow. Join us as we draw valuable insights from the past and present to prepare you for the future of business. Together, we explore the transformative job landscape and the impact of AI on our lives and industries. As an entrepreneur myself, I understand the importance of future-proofing your business and your career. AI is a critical component of that conversation. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. And if you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review. Your support means the world to us and helps us reach more listeners who are ready to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Ben Angel's new book, The Wolf is at the Door, How to Survive and Thrive in an AI-Driven World. Presented by Entrepreneur. Get an exclusive sneak peek and pre-order at thewolfbookhub.com. Jason, first of all, congratulations on the success of your new book, Build for Tomorrow. I have to say it's an incredibly relevant topic of discussion, especially around adaptability in the world of artificial intelligence that we now find ourselves how are you keeping up with all of the recent developments that are occurring? I really appreciate that and, and congratulations on your book. And I am just having a lot of conversations, which I'll be honest, I think is more valuable than trying to keep up with the blow by blow of every shift in AI. Because the thing is that we're in this early day experience where a lot of what's being developed right now is experimental, will never actually become broadly useful. People are trying to figure out what to do with this thing that is so incredible, but frankly, doesn't have obvious use cases. I think that that might surprise people to hear, but right now I think that people are applying AI to everything. And what we'll discover is that a lot of that stuff is actually just kind of useless. And that's okay because it takes time to figure out what something is for. And that's the thing that we're doing right now. Yeah. I have to say, I feel like we're the guinea pigs of this experiment. But we're always the guinea pigs, right? Like this is something that people treat AI. I have a belief that pretty much everything that you've ever experienced in your life or that you are experiencing in the world is just a repeat of things that happened before. And you can tell yourself all day long, no, this time is different. This time is new. But I really just don't think that it is. And I think the same is true with AI. People talk a lot about, oh my God, the experiment that is being conducted on on live human beings. So that's also the experiment that happened when Samuel Morris introduced the first commercially viable telegraph and suddenly we were able to move information faster than the speed of a horse. That was a radical experiment because the world had never moved information that fast and you had no idea what was going to happen. But the only way to discover what was going to happen was to put it out in the world and see how people are using it. And that's what we're still doing today. Do you think there's a slight difference though? Because a lot of people are referencing the industrial revolution, mm-hmm. but in that case, that was confined largely to the UK for a 70 year period because they prevented the export of equipment and skills to other countries so they could get a stakehold on it. 
Do you think this is moving at a faster rate than some of those historical events that have occurred? Well, sure, it's moving faster than the Industrial Revolution, but everything is relative. It it doesn't make any sense to compare what is happening now to something that happened in a completely different time with completely different expectations and resources. We are in an interconnected world in a way that we weren't before. So quite obviously, things that are introduced now are going to move faster than they did 400 years ago. But the question I think that has to really be explored is, if you're going to be doing these kind of historical comparisons, is what is the change relatively? So the speed at which something is changing now will feel exactly like the speed at which something changed back then to the people who were alive at that time. For for people who had never heard recorded music, because for all of human history, the only way to listen to music was to have a human being perform with an instrument in front of you. To them, the first time that they heard a phonograph, that was as radical a change as seeing ChatGPT for the first time, if not more radical. And that's what I think we need to really be focused on. Yeah. And where do you think the publishing industry is potentially going? I mean, we've seen CNET, they did their test of AI and then they obviously quickly got a lot of criticism for it. Yeah, rightly so. But part of the story that a lot of people didn't kind of follow up on, which occurred a few weeks later, was that they ended up laying off a number of their writers and then elevated someone to the position of AI development. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily that maybe in their eyes they saw it as a complete and utter failure. But where do you see the publishing business going? Okay, so that's a great question, and I'm going to make it go really big. But let me start small. My first job in national media was at Men's Health. I was a junior editor at Men's Health. This was like 2008. I just moved to New York. And if you know anything about 2008, I showed up right around a recession. And shortly thereafter, I saw a lot of my colleagues get laid off, not just at Men's Health, but also at Best Life. People may not even remember, but Best Life was a more mature, like older men, more mature focused magazine that was a spinoff of Men's Health. And it was called Best Life. It was a print magazine and it was online. And they closed it. They folded it and they laid everybody off. And you might say, how awful, how awful, right? How awful to have this thriving publication and now it is just gone. And for people whose lives were disrupted because people worked there and they had to find other jobs, that was a disruption without question. But I've come to think a lot about that particular moment because here's the thing. Why did Best Life exist? I'll tell you why. Best Life existed because Men's Health, which was a brand that had been around for longer, was struggling to land luxury advertisers because luxury advertisers didn't want to advertise in Men's Health because they felt it was too down market. And so Men's Health thought, well, why don't we create a more upscale version of Men's Health? We'll call it Best Life and we'll be able to get the luxury advertisers. And that worked for a while until dot, 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 it didn't because the economy changed. And as a result, Best Life wasn't getting those luxury advertisers, and therefore Best Life ceased to exist. Is that a bad thing? I would argue no. Things are created because of 
current opportunities in marketplaces and current needs. At the time that Best Life was created, there was a marketplace opportunity to create it. Then that marketplace opportunity disappeared. Therefore, we don't have Best Life. Just because we have something doesn't mean that we should have it forever. Just because something was created doesn't mean it exists forever. So why does CNET exist? CNET exists because there was a time in which that information was hard to find in other places. And so somebody created CNET and saw a marketplace opportunity. And then they staffed it with people that frankly aren't all writing amazing breaking stories. And that's no shade on CNET. That's literally every single publication because most publications are just driving towards traffic, which means that most publications just have to rewrite what is trafficking on other websites so that they can get some of that traffic too. That's not a good system. That's a broken system. That's just trying to take advantage of whatever small shattered portion of the economics of media still work. So CNET is struggling right now and they laid off people and that sucks for the people who were laid off. That sucks. But just because a publication is shifting or possibly even going to go away doesn't mean that we have lost something because we are going to gain something else. Those people are going to go on to do great work elsewhere. New market opportunities are going to be created. It doesn't make sense to look at something in a vacuum and say, just because something is shrinking, we are losing. That's usually not the case. See, I've heard a lot of people talking about, you know, we need to pivot, we need to adapt. And a lot of people, it's like the scene out of Friends where they're trying to carry the couch up the stairs and Ross is yelling pivot to everyone. Mm -hmm. But they seem to be very vague on in terms of what is the potential pivot that we as a society and an economy are going to need to make. I mean, there's the generalization that there will be more jobs in tech. Speaking to some people in tech, some of them are already aware of layoffs due to AI and are questioning what is their career looking like even as a coder within the next few years? Do you have any kind of indication or forethought on where you think these new jobs may be created? Well, I don't because I can't tell the future and none of us can, but I can tell you that over and over, I mean, you mentioned the industrial revolution. So here's an interesting fact from the industrial revolution. So we all know the Luddites, right? Usually that's just a term people use for people who don't like technology. The Luddites were a real people. It was a movement uh, of people who were trying to, who broke into factories and smashed automation technology. And a lot of people at the time who were employed as what you might call kind of pre-industrial, industrial knitters. Their jobs were to sit in factories and knit utility socks, let's just say, all day long. And then machines came along and they could do that knitting much faster and more efficiently than those people. And as a result, a lot of those people lost their jobs. Do you know what happened next? What? I talked to a knitting historian. There is a historian for everything. And what happened was that I should be totally clear. I am not discounting the terrible individual disruption that happens when somebody loses their job. That is something that we as a society should be thinking a lot about. But what happened? What happened was that, according to this knitting historian, there was an incredible explosion of innovation in knitting. Why? Because now you had all these people who were not employed doing repetitive tasks all day. And so they started to rely upon their human ingenuity and they started to innovate and they started to create the regional knitting styles that define global textiles. 
And that comes out of a moment in which the Industrial Revolution prompted greater innovation by humans. I'll give you another example. You know, we're very, we're very concerned, generally speaking, when people are talking about new technologies. We're very concerned about the fragility of the human experience. We seem to think yeah. that we are always at the verge of breaking, that the way in which we function as a society is always at the verge of breaking, the way that we function as human beings are always at the verge of breaking. This is why, for example, we're so focused on how smartphones are like tearing at the fabric of society and people aren't able to communicate with each other anywhere. It's all nonsense because we've been talking about this forever. And so and sort of endless examples of this. People thought that the spinning wheel of a bicycle would make us go insane. They thought that novels would make women infertile, that radio would create addictions. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. So you have John Philip Sousa at the dawn of recorded music. John Philip Sousa is the one of the world's most famous composers at the time. Right? You know his music today. Like that's John Philip Sousa. John Philip Sousa was very opposed to recorded music technology. And that was for a whole host of reasons, but obviously the biggest one was that he was concerned for his own economic well-being. He was in the business of live music, and now he saw these machines, and he thought that machines would fully replace people. And he had all these wacky, wacky arguments for how, for example, nobody will ever meet each other anymore. Why? Because people meet at parties, but they dance when the band is dancing. And then the band, because they're human beings, have to take a break. And it's at the break when people stop dancing and actually start talking. And that's when friendships are made. And that's when love connections are made. And now because the music will come from a machine that doesn't need to take a break, nobody will ever stop dancing and therefore nobody will ever meet. Right? This is the kind of stuff that people were arguing back then, which I would argue is not that different from the kinds of stuff that you're arguing with, uh, that you're hearing argued with AI today. So anyway, I know I'm being long-winded, but I have a point. And the point is this. John Philip Sousa, one of the things that he worried about was that when recorded music enters the home, when people have phonographs, when they have machines that can play music so that they don't need a human being to perform with an instrument, he thought that people would stop learning how to play instruments. He thought that there would be no reason why people would pick up an instrument and learn it when they had a machine that could perform the music for them. Ben, do you know what happened when recorded music entered the home vis-a-vis -vis people deciding to learn how to play instruments. Did it go up uh, or down? It would have gone up. It went wildly up, <laughs> wildly up. And in fact, the music industry became much richer and set the stage for what we have now with all sorts of jobs that John Philip Sousa could not have possibly envisioned from DJs to audio technicians to whatever, right? I mean, you asked me the question that prompted this long rant was, what are the jobs of the future going to be? I don't know. John Philip Sousa didn't know. But I will tell yeah. you that what always happens is that when new technology is created, it creates new opportunity. It reduces need in some places and it creates new needs in other places. And then those needs are filled by new jobs and new human ingenuity. That is what we will see. It's interesting trying to piece this puzzle together because obviously there's a million different predictions happening right now. I mean, the second chat GPT was released, I've been doing automation for the past 15 years, mm -hmm. giving away my age. But typically when I write a book, I will hire my own editor and researcher and I have done for the past few years. This book, I'll be honest, they're not needed. Mm -hmm. Even in the instance of our veterinarian, we had spent over $1,000 on vet bills trying to work out what the issue is, uploaded the blood work, 
found out what the answer was in less than five minutes. Mm-hmm. Attorney, immigration fees. The attorney, I suspect, will be phased out before the end of the year. Oh, that's crazy. The attorney is going to get phased out by the end of the year? I'm not talking generalistic. I'm talking in my own case. Okay. In that looking at over contracts, using AI to assess contracts and pull up relevant things that need to be discussed before anything is signed. But what I'm finding in researching this book, I'm trying to use it for every single use case possible. Mm-hmm. And this year, I mean, it's phenomenal. We'll probably save over $100,000 because of artificial intelligence. Now, obviously, that comes at a cost of someone else. But the question is, the use cases that we're starting to see, I mean, there was one a CEO out of Hong Kong last year. They trained an AI for a gaming company and the AI, obviously humans had to execute the decision-making, it outperformed the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Mm -hmm. Do you think people are adequately prepared to adapt? Yes, yes, other jobs are going to be created, but are new jobs going to outpace the loss of existing ones within the next few years? I mean, what you're asking or what you're setting up is what economists call the lump of labor fallacy. The lump of labor fallacy is, well, it's a fallacy. And uh, the lump of labor in this is the idea that there is a fixed amount of work to be done and a fixed number of people to do that work. And if you disrupt, if you create an imbalance on either side of that, you create a kind of permanent disruption. So this is the reason why, for example, people are to people who are opposed to immigration because they believe that people from outside the country will come in and they will therefore take the jobs of people who already live in the country. This is a belief that there is a fixed amount of work to be done. And if you add more workers, then there are therefore going to be people who are out of work. But of course, that's not true. That's not what happens. And the reason for that is very obvious and simple. And it's because the immigrants aren't just workers, they're consumers too. And therefore, when they come and work, they also consume and therefore they create jobs. There is no fixed lump of labor. And the same is true with technology. When technology automates some version of what people used to do, it does not create a net loss of jobs. It creates a shift in jobs. That's what always happens. If that isn't what happened, then we would all be out of work starting in the Industrial Revolution. You and I wouldn't have jobs. Why on earth would we? So I don't see a reason why that would change now. Yes, this technology is interesting and different. Yes, it will create shifts that are that are going to be, by their very nature, different than ones before. But are we prepared for it? I mean, we're prepared for it because we have human brains. Human brains are adaptable. They're literally built to adapt. I mean, if you get these stupid studies where people are given smartphones for the first time and their brains are scanned and you see that there are changes in their neural pathways and uh, then everyone goes, oh my God, that's awful. Except that you do the same exact studies when people like learn how to drive a car and the same thing happens. Every time you learn something new, your brain changes. That's what it is built for. So are we prepared? I mean, we don't have a game plan, but we've never had a game plan. And this means that there will be messy And there will be winners and losers, and we will, as a society, have to do our best to identify where the weakest parts of our economy and our social structures are and figure out how to bolster them. But do I have full confidence that we will create better things as a result and create a net growth in comfort and lifestyle and ability and access for everybody? Yeah, I do believe that. Before we continue... 
Beyond Unstoppable is brought to you by Ben Angel's new book, The Wolf is at the Door, How to Survive and Thrive in an AI-Driven World. Get your exclusive sneak peek and pre-order at thewolfbookhub.com. Now, back to the show. Do you think the pandemic was a good testing ground for our adaptability as humans? Because part of this, we did incredibly well. Others didn't do so well. And that we're only talking off, you know, the backs of a couple of years ago in terms of everything was upended. Do you think that was a good test for people for internal reflection to go, how did I adapt during that scenario? I do, actually. I've often thought of the pandemic as a real success for human social structures. All right. I mean, you can think of the pandemic as having done all sorts of terrible damage to human social structures. And that's true. There were riots in the streets and there were massive political fights. And we as a social structure were, were pushed very hard, but it all held all of it, all of it held. And not only did it hold, but it came roaring back. The economy came roaring back. What you found was that people had a deep, deep desire to connect, to build with each other, to thrive, to support each other. And that's the reason why we have survived every other thing that has ever been thrown at us. Because as humans, what we do is we build. And this is what we did in the Industrial Revolution. Do you know that the bubonic plague of the 1300s created the employment contract? You know that? It's no, fascinating. I, I was talking to Andrew Rabin, a medieval scholar at the University of Louisville. I wanted to know what good came out of the bubonic plague because back in March of 2020, we didn't know what was going to happen with the pandemic. And I didn't know if anything good was going to come from this. And I thought, well, if something good came out of the worst version I can think of, then maybe something good will come from the pandemic. Called Andrew. I said, what good came from the, from the bubonic plague of the 1300s? He said all sorts of fantastic things did. But one of the most interesting ones was that the bubonic plague killed upwards of 60% of Europe. The lords, this was the medieval European economy was a lord and serf system. It was slavery. And so the lords want the serfs to get back to work, start making money off the land. But you know what has changed? What has changed is that there aren't enough serfs for all the lords anymore. They're all dead, which means that the lords have themselves a labor shortage. It's what, they, it's what we would call it now, where multiple lords are now having to go to the serfs and say, come work for me. No, 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 come work for me. The serfs realize that something has changed, which is that they can now ask for compensation for their labor because they are in demand. Or they can say, you know what, screw this, and I'm going to move to the city, and I'm going to join the first merchant class. I'm going to become an entrepreneur. That's what happened. And, uh, you know, was it clean and simple? No, it was incredibly messy. It was, it was awful. But the end result is the reason that you and I are talking right now, which is to say that in one way or another, you and I are having this conversation because our income is tied to it. Like the work that you do, the work that I do is, has brought us together in this moment because we do work and we are compensated for it. And that, at least in Western society, comes from the bubonic plague. Good things happen out of very bad things. Well, the Industrial Revolution also brought in workers' rights. Yes. So in relationship to that 
Do you think that there should be some level of AI regulation? I mean, sure, in theory, but tell me what it is. Because also, tell me why I should trust a bunch of 300-year-old men who can barely explain the basics of the internet to regulate AI. Tell me why I should trust those people. The people who occupy the halls of Congress, why are they smarter than Sam Altman? Why are they smarter? I don't understand. Is it because we have an inherent belief that they are looking out for us? Do you really think that your congressman is looking out for you? I don't. But do you feel the same? Who's going to build the regulations? But do you feel the same way with the technology industry? Because they're effectively scraping content and we've got more lawsuits coming out this week that they're scraping copywritten content. Yeah, well, these things are going to have to be worked out and they will. I mean, everything is a stabilizing and destabilizing and I don't think that anybody should have free reign over things. But I think that if you have an American political body that says, you know what, we should hit pause on this right now. All you are going to do is let China define what AI does. Tell me how that's good. How is that good? The interesting thing is that that pause came from experts in AI, not from the government. Well, that pause doesn't exist. So that pause is a thing that's been thrown around by a lot of different people. What's fascinating about this subject to me is the people, the creators of the AI are now coming out and warning of the economic implications as well as other issues such as Sam Altman. Jeffrey Hinton is obviously a notable one. I mean, he's the one of the godfathers of the neural network, which is AI, AI is based on. And he recently resigned from Google to speak out about the issues. In all of the research that I'm doing, I keep coming to the same conclusion, which is there isn't necessarily an advantageous position in terms of being an AI doomer or being an AI optimist. Do you think in terms of preparing people for change, do you think we should be able to get out of this binary thinking of just seeing it one way and being able to see the shades of gray in this? So I don't approach this with binary thinking. I mean, I know that I have played the role in this conversation of being the AI optimist, but really my perspective is this. We spend as a society far and as individuals too, we spend far too much time and energy debating whether something should happen when it has already happened. And that is not productive. And instead, what we need to do is we need to channel that time and energy into figuring out how to make the most of it. AI is here. It's not not here. And you cannot find an elected official I don't think you can find an elected official who can explain the technology, but you certainly can't find one who's going to come up with some incredibly brilliant solution to halt AI around the world and preserve exactly whatever it is that everyone wants to preserve. That doesn't exist. So instead, why don't we start thinking about how do we make the most of this? Is there regulation? Is there smart regulation that could exist? Sure. Here's one that I think makes a lot of sense. If something is produced by artificial intelligence, it should acknowledge that, right? It sounds smart to me. But are we going to stop this technology? No. China's not going to stop it. I had a really great conversation with David Otter, who is an economist at MIT, who made this wonderful point, which is we get the future that we work towards. And 
AI is what he called plastic technology, which is to say that it's not made of plastic, which is to say that it's very flexible, it's malleable, it's moldable. It is whatever we make of it. So in China, they're going to use AI to create what is no doubt going to be the world's most sophisticated surveillance system. That's what they're going to do with it. And that's not what a free market in America is going to do with it. I would hope that we are committed to thinking really smartly, not about how to pretend that this stuff doesn't exist, but rather how to figure out how we can use this technology to create the future that we actually want. And that means engaging with it. That means being open-minded about it. That means no more talk about how fragile we are as humans. Instead, let's run real experiments. Let's be genuinely interested. I mean, I love what you're doing as you're diving into all this, but of course, let's keep in mind that what you're doing is trapped inside of a window of time. It's very, very early days. 100%. And I think that running to the halls of Congress and saying, this must be regulated, as if regulation is by itself, just the very concept of it, some kind of solution, is foolish and sets us back. Which isn't to say that all regulation is going to be bad, but I don't think that that can be the solution. That can't be the way that we just approach this, which is like, oh, we just need to regulate it. As long as if a bunch of lawmakers just get together and regulate it and try to stop it, or try to hold it back, that we're, we're somehow doing something positive. I don't think that we are. It's interesting because obviously the AI experts that are calling for regulation, they're not calling it for it necessarily to be stopped. And there's certainly no pause occurring. Well, but let's pick apart. I mean, we have to really like be smart and pick apart what you're lumping in together as like AI experts. Because this is something that happens with every technology, which is like somebody was involved in the creation of something. And then this one person says, you know what, actually, I have a change of heart here. And then that person gets held up. Really, their voice gets elevated above an entire industry of people who are genuinely working hard on creating good things. Because it's very helpful to have a media narrative. And Congress is always looking for a, a kind of a contrarian spokesperson who can say this thing is terrible. It was the psychologist who became the voice of comic books are destroying children. Remember that? And they brought this guy in front of a, a congressional hearing, and he talked about how children are being driven to depression and to murderous states because of comic books. And what it led to, of course, was the comic industry then saying, oh my God, Congress is going to come regulate us. So we got to regulate ourselves. They came up with the Comic Code Authority, which basically squashed creative activity in the comics industry for decades. It was a, a net human loss. And I think that what you're seeing right now is a combination of smart, intelligent people who are genuinely trying to figure out what is best and hysterics who benefit from hysteria, right? What's his name? His name is the guy who, like the sort of featured player in The Social Dilemma. Yeah, whatever about? his name yeah. is, I'll find it. But yeah. anyway, like that's a guy who, The Social Dilemma, I'm looking it up. You know, that's a guy who has Tristan Harris, Tristan Harris from the Center for Humane Technology, right? Like that's a guy who makes a lot of money off of people who are afraid of technology. Don't forget that like every movement that touches politics has a kind of, are you familiar with the economic concept of Baptists and bootleggers? No. All right. So Baptists and bootleggers, it's, it's a metaphor from prohibition. Uh, the idea is that the people who were kind of 
publicly pushing for prohibition and were aligned with politicians who were sympathetic to them were they were the Baptists, they, which is to say that they were people who had a genuine belief that alcohol was a scourge on society, that we would be better as a people if there was no alcohol. And they had a sort of noble mission, even if they were completely misguided in it. And it was easy for politicians to therefore align themselves with this very noble mission. Who could be opposed to these deeply religious people who just want what's best? But the thing is that behind that movement were the bootleggers. The bootleggers were the, the people who were going to profit very handily off of the distribution of illegal alcohol, because that's, of course, exactly what happened. As soon as alcohol was banned, a black market formed and the bootleggers made great money. They were thrilled with prohibition. Bootleggers loved prohibition. We cannot forget that the idea of the Baptists and the bootleggers is that all legislation creates strange bedfellows. And you have people who have genuine interest in societal good, and then you also have people who are just out for self-interest. And both of those parties are interested in a piece of legislation. And both of those parties will be pushing. And it does no good to either lump them together or to act like one of those parties doesn't exist. And I think that that is a lot of what you're seeing now in arguments against AI. This is not all people who are just like, well, we're the experts in AI and we think this is bad. This is also a lot of people who stand to profit quite handily if either AI is regulated such that only a small number of large companies are able to really engage with it, whereas smaller players are regulated out of existence, or people who just make a lot of money off of scaring you. And you got to be really, really careful when you just start talking about like lumping in all the experts. Like All the experts are a small number of people in the broader AI community who all have a lot of different agendas, some good, some bad. A hundred percent. It's interesting looking at all of the reporting coming out is that they're talking about super intelligence or AGI, for example, but it's not necessarily getting at the heart of the societal changes that are going to occur before that. So it's, in essence, it's almost a little bit of a distraction, but of course it's drumming up new business. Yeah. I think that the reason I said, I said a little bit ago that one of the great challenges with adoption of new technology is that we don't, as humans fundamentally do not believe in our own adaptability, right? This is the reason why the spinning wheel of the bicycle will make us go insane and novels will make women infertile. We just kind of don't believe in our own. But really what we're doing, the, the problem with that is that we cannot imagine a world in which some things are not fixed. If the number of jobs that were available in America were fixed and the variable was the number of people who come into the country, then you would have an imbalance because more people would come into the country, but the number of jobs are fixed. But that's not true. The number of jobs are, are variable. They're, they're not fixed. And the number of people who come into the country are not fixed. And that's the reason why the economy can grow and change. The same is true for the way in which we, as a society, adapt with technology. It is because every part of our lives and every part of our society is unfixed. Not None of it's fixed. None of it. I was just on CBS News talking about AI's impact on travel. And the host asked me, isn't this going to be, isn't this going to put a lot of people out of business? And I said, well, look, people have been saying that travel agents are going to be 
out of existence since the internet began, but here they still are, right? And they're quite useful for a lot of people. And the nature of their work has changed, but the industry still exists. And you could imagine a world in which travel becomes more efficient to book, therefore cheaper, therefore more accessible, therefore more people travel, therefore there have to be more jobs to serve those people who travel. That is the same logic that got us to the leisure economy that we have now. Because as soon as farming was automated in a country that used to be fully agrarian, it's not as if everyone was suddenly out of work. What instead happened was that work became more efficient, which means that people had more time, which means that they wanted to spend their money in different ways, which means that a leisure economy developed to serve those people, which then created new jobs. And you could not have imagined in early 1800s America, when the first tractors or whatever are, are coming online, you couldn't have imagined that this tractor is going to lead to professional baseball. Couldn't have imagined that. Yeah. Couldn't have imagined that. But that's what happened. And that's because things aren't fixed and because we are adaptable. It's fascinating Period. that you bring up the tractor. I've heard Gary V mention it. I mean, I grew up on a cattle farm. Mm. So the tractors, but I mean, there are key distinctions that tractors and farming equipment, there were greater barriers to entry than what there is today. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of those barriers to entry that we could see a huge acceleration and change. So on that, I know you've got to be aware of your time. So what would you suggest to people in terms of upskilling now and changing before the change occurs which is mm -hmm. it's already happening let's be real yeah but what suggestion would you make to people in relationship to upskilling where would you focus the effort so i think that everybody should spend a little time thinking about what parts of them are replaceable and what parts are not and how can you think about the parts of you that are irreplaceable, which is going to be your human ability, which is going to be the transferable value that you have that goes beyond the tasks that you perform every day. I am not a writer. I am a storyteller, right? And it is possible that a bunch of the writing that I do will at some point be automated. Honestly, I don't think so, but it's possible, at least some part of it. But if I think of myself purely as a writer, then I'm in trouble because that kind of stuff is going to get replaced. But if I think of myself as a storyteller and a storyteller with a distinct perspective, I find ways to be useful. How? Well, because what I've done here with you today is storytelling. When I get hired by a company to stand on a stage and talk to them about how they can be more adaptable. That's storytelling. Writing a book is storytelling. Doing podcasts is storytelling. Consulting is storytelling. People buy my time and they tell me their problems. You know what I do? I tell them a story. I, I tell them a story of somebody who I talked to who went through a similar problem. And then I tell them the story of how they can solve it. I have thought through, not perfectly, but I've thought through what is the thing beneath the tasks that I perform and the role that I occupy. Those things are changeable. But there's something inside of me that does not change in times of change. And I think we all need to be very mindful of that. And I realize that I'm speaking from 
a place of privilege here because of my role and the industry that I'm in. But I think that if you go up and down the economy, you can think and you can identify ways in which everybody has something that they can lean more into. Whoever is listening to this have a incredible human ingenuity. You are a creature built to create and to change. And you have the same skill set as every other human on the planet. The same one. I'll tell you, we are all good at one thing, pattern recognition. It's the one thing we're good at. And the difference among us is that we're all good at recognizing different patterns. I, I can't do what a metal worker does. They recognize patterns in a way they have an understanding of sort of space and, and spatial construction. My pattern is how people think. I hear people talk. I understand the way that they're thinking about things. I can repeat that to other people. We all have an ability to be a pattern recognizer. And we will always live in a world that values humans, period. Jason, I want to thank you so much for being here today. I love this subject, as you can tell. Yeah, it's interesting, like the unfolding of the process. I mean, for me, I've been speaking to a lot of 20-year-olds who are studying for work right now that they fully suspect won't exist in the next few years and there's already yeah. layoffs happening within their industry. Right. But I liken a lot to the process of grief in terms of denial, anger, acceptance, moving through those stages. And it's interesting watching the younger generation go through these changes. Yeah. It's funny, we spent 50 minutes talking about AI and I didn't give you my core bit on AI. So I'll just tell it to you. But my core bit is this. I went to speak to a law firm. They had an attorney retreat a couple months ago in San Francisco. And after my talk, we got to Q&A and all the attorneys are asking me questions about ChatGPT. And, and afterwards, I, I got off stage and I was talking to their CEO and I said, so interesting that all of your, all of your attorneys are so focused on ChatGPT. And he said, they're not going to say this out loud, but I'll tell you what they're concerned about. What they're concerned about is that AI is going to make their work more efficient and they get paid on billable hours. And so if their work becomes efficient, they can't bill as many hours. And that's what they're worried about. Yeah. And I said, well, that's great. That's a positive thing. And the reason that's a positive thing is because you know who hates billable hours? Everybody. Everybody yeah. hates billable hours. Everybody. Clients hate billable hours. Lawyers hate billable hours. Why do we still have billable hours? Because nobody was incentivized to make a change because that was the system. And there was no reason for any law firm to change it. But guess what? Now there is. So what's going to happen? What's going to happen is that AI is going to break a thing that was already broken. That's the thing. It was already broken. You'd ask me about media. It's already broken. It's not breaking something that's working. It's breaking something that's broken. Students writing term papers using ChatGPT, term papers were never a good way to establish whether or not a student had absorbed information. It was always a bad way to do that. But again, there was no incentive to find another system. Now there is, because we are going to break things that are broken, which allows us to build from what matters. And that, I think, is going to be the true gift of AI.
That's perfect. I, especially billable hours. I know my attorney is concerned and he should be. Yeah, yeah. And I'm should glad. Be. But you know what? <laughs> should glad. be. Yeah, should be. But you know what? You'll find other ways. There will be new ways to build relationships. And also, guess what? What if you and every other client uh, for your attorney only have to pay half of what you used to pay, right? You only have to pay half now. So the work speed is doubled. So you paid your attorney $10,000 a month. Now you're paying them $5,000 a month. All right. Well, that's good for you. You saved money. Is that bad for the attorney? It's only bad for the attorney if the attorney thinks of things as fixed. But I don't think of things as fixed. So what could the attorney do? Well, here's a start. The attorney used to only serve a high-end clientele who could afford very expensive legal services. There is a whole world of people out there who cannot afford legal services. Maybe now they can. Maybe you can shift your law firm to serve a far wider range of people with a far wider range of legal services. That allows you to make the same amount, if not more money than you did before, and it creates greater access to legal services for people who didn't have it. That is a net victory for everybody. And this is what we're afraid of? Doesn't make sense. Learn more about Jason Pfeiffer at jasonpfeiffer.com. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Beyond Unstoppable and visit thewolfbookhub.com for your exclusive sneak peek of The Wolf is at the Door.